If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had some really dreadful scripts in the beginning. Well, what was your worst? Uh, I think I had wrote a Murphy Brown where a terrorist came in. <laughs> it yeah. was just so, so misguided. By the way, I love that you said, I think I wrote a Murphy Brown. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, you know I wrote a You Murphy. know damn well you wrote a Murphy Brown. No, the I think was that this might be my worst. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> okay. there's, uh, there's a lot to choose from. Hi, my name is Paul Lieberstein, and I am Brian Bob Gardner's mother. Hi, everybody. It's me, Brian Baumgartner here, and you are listening to another episode of Off the Beat. Today, you just heard it. My mother is on the podcast. <laughs> That's right. Our old friend, Paul Lieberstein, formerly known as Toby Flenderson. Well, Paul didn't, maybe he didn't give birth to me, but in a way, he was like a mother to me as the showrunner of The Office for several seasons. He kept the wheels of the show turning. He's the one that we went to with our problems, and he kept our show safe, happy, and well-fed, just like a mama bear. Today, I wanted to talk to Paul about his life outside of the office. He's not only a loving mother, but he's a writer, actor, director, showrunner, producer, not to mention a trained economist and vibraphonist, as I learned today. In truth, Paul has helped redefine the genre of the half-hour sitcom with shows like Greg the Bunny, The Drew Carey Show, The Bernie Mac Show, King of the Hill. Not to mention The Office, Newsroom, Ghosted, and Space Force. Everything he touches turns to gold. Maybe not gold, but it's innovative, it's smart, it's boundary pushing. 
this is a person who really moves the needle of television with everything he does. And right now he has a brand new show on AMC, Lucky Hank, with our old friend Bob Odenkirk. It is every bit as excellent and groundbreaking as, well, everything that Paul does. I highly recommend it. But before that, please welcome my dear friend, the soft-spoken yet, well, mostly lovable, Paul Lieberstein. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning left over from the night before. Paul Lieberstein. I am Bob Gardner. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. It's going good. It's going uh, good? It's going good. Yeah. Shrug, shrug. I jumped into great without really thinking that through. <laughs> oh. Well, listen, no, things I mean, are fine. Things are fine. I just saw you. Now I'm seeing you again. This is, in, this is incredible. This is good stuff. Yeah. This is like twice in a, in a month. We had gaps without seeing each other. We yeah, there have been yeah. some significant gaps. There's been some big gaps lasting a few years. I know. Now, have you been? Uh, I'm going to ask you some more about this later. But have you been out with a picket sign? We are currently now on uh, day 32 of the writer's strike, the WGA strike. Have you been carrying a sign? I've carried a sign. Okay. Well, you know what? I walk the picket line. I don't carry the sign. <laughs> you don't carry the sign. It's too heavy. I, I, I don't. No one ever gave me a sign. I haven't asked for one. It seems okay. like it seems like everyone knows what we're up to. Um, but if right. uh, if I if I need to carry a sign, I'll carry a sign. You'll carry the sign. All I right. Never said no. I'm not doing that. I no. I, just, I know exactly. You don't yeah. check it. You don't go to the table and check in. You just kind of. I, I swipe. Up. I swipe my card at the table. Oh, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sure. They just right. seem fine with me not wearing the shirt and not. Um, Um, yeah your story is so fascinating to me i mean largely because of your family so i want to i want to rewind back in time okay we're on the mean streets of connecticut yeah in the late 70s early 80s okay what was what was what was little paul like back then what did Mm. what did what did paul like to do um i was uh really into music music Music. yeah okay played in the orchestra played percussion in orchestras for a while i thought i was going the route of uh professional drummer that's right i forgot you were the drummer i forgot you gave me tips that's right right when when you had to play drums so you my i wanted to be a professional baseball player you wanted to be a professional drummer yeah now i i have to i have to hit pause on this for one second and ask you because i don't even know what this is because you said percussion to start and i thought you were being vague my excellent researching team has found out that you played the vibraphone yeah what is a what's a vibraphone i literally don't know what a vibraphone is well you're about to find oh, out oh so that is a vibraphone Oh, it's like the, the it's little, a little uh, like a marimba. Um, okay, it's a big jazz instrument, largely 
metal keys sustaining has a pedal there where you, you press it down and it sustains you play it with okay. a, soft, a soft mallet okay and it's uh i love a soft mallet yeah well it doesn't. <laughs> I, wait so when you said percussion but that was drums as well yeah so you you played things you could bang yes exactly okay. yeah i'll leave it at that so your first performing was musically yeah yeah timpanis yeah. snare drum <laughs> were you good i was good uh as yeah. as uh i was a little better than you are at that uh, one is at that age you know but i, I don't mm-hmm. think i was you know amazing yet i kind of quit before before uh i i, I had this experience we were on vacation in florida and kind of like ended up in some just dumb hotel lounge with a the family there was this drummer and he had a couple of electric drums there and i thought it was really cool and that was before that was before the time of electric drums and uh i came up to him during a break and just, you know asked him about it and we got to talking and he's like you want to be a drummer god don't be a drummer this is awful <laughs> This is horrible. And no drummer had ever said that to me before. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> you know, what? a lousy life. He was just a miserable person, though, Paul. He was, but I look, I was, uh, you know, 14, 15, 14. Did I ever tell you the story? I can't remember if I've told this on the podcast or not, but. First off, for those of you who don't know, yes, I am I am not a drummer. I do not play the drums. I never played the drums. I, they're the the greatest inside the writer's room writer joke in the history of television was that, let's see if I get this right, because you're the musician. The writers on The Office wrote Kevin to be the lead singer and drummer for a police <laughs> cover band. Yeah. And the joke was... Was it Police that, or Phil Collins? Oh, my God. You just literally made everyone turn off. No, it was Scrantonicity. Scrantonicity. It was the police. Scrantonicity, yeah. Of course, Jesus of course, Christ. Of course. Well, now you're not even going to remember the joke. So apparently the joke is, I'll remind you of the joke that you nerds made, <laughs> is that in the police, the singing is off the beat, name of this podcast, off the beat, of the drumming so for me to be the lead singer and drummer of a police (laughs) cover band i would have to be an absolute musical savant genius to be able to accomplish those two things do you remember this now you did great well thank you but that was the joke that was the joke that no one in the world knew but that was the joke paul used to help me he would tutor me i guess and uh, you know, I've said this many times, Ed Helms and Craig Robinson, amazing musicians. So we would, you know, by the time I started playing with them, there would be like six songs and they'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. We got it. And I was like, guys, we've got to practice. And I would call <laughs> Paul in and be like, come over to the warehouse with me. I need help here. These guys won't help me. But one time I was, uh, went to a charity event with Alice Cooper and I was picked up at the airport. No way. Okay. Yes. And there was like a benefit concert that night. I mean, these people from kiss and all of these amazing musicians are going to play together for this charity thing. 
And the guy who picks me up at the airport says, you know, and then at the end, the last song, we're going to call everybody up on stage and we want you to play the drums on schools out for summer. (laughs) And, And I was like, I started like, full on just flop sweating in the back of the car. I was like, I, 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 I can't, I can't. You didn't tell them you were the drummer. No, I did. I told them. No, I, I didn't care. care. I said to him and he's like, no, well, of course they think I'm being modest, Uh, right? Like, like I'm not that great. I think it's what they're thinking. Meanwhile, it's Adrian young from no, like an amazing drummer is like playing the rest of the show and all this. And I'm like, no, no, really? Like, I really cannot do this. Like, I am not going to have Alice Cooper and members of Kiss and all these, like, looking like, back at me, like, what like, the fuck are you on? doing? Yeah. So I did, I did not let this nine year old on the set. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't have my tutor, you there to help me uh, learn. So, no, I. Oh, you know what we did on the office once? The first time. You tell it. Do you remember? Now you're remembering? I remember we had a drummer behind a curtain. That was uh, my the first the first that's the only time I didn't really was play. It you? God, what was this? Phyllis's was this wedding? Phyllis's wedding. Yep. And it was a great was it from the Goo Goo Dolls or something like that? Uh, I may be saying the totally the wrong band. It was uh it was a very famous very famous drummer who was behind the curtain <laughs> playing the drums. And, yeah. And I and mine were dead just pretending yeah what do you you know i don't know yeah we put something on him or i think you weren't really touching though yeah no i i think i was touching yeah but yeah but you couldn't hear yeah (laughs) (laughs) you need a drummer behind a curtain i I need a drummer behind the curtain that's right all right i did not think we were gonna there you go there's stories of drumming with brian and paul who are acting your sister yeah. Suzanne. Suzanne. Lieberstein, now Daniels. Daniels. And yeah. uh, your brother, Warren Lieberstein, now Lieberstein. Yes. Yeah, uh, both writers. Suzanne, obviously, married to Greg Daniels, a world renowned. That's a horrible phrase. <laughs> a, a, world famous. A, a, a world famous, a very big uh, television executive. An amazing book, by the way, which I have also read. So what was, were you all, who was interested in television in your home? All of you or none of you? Or how did this start hmm. that all three of you ended up working in television? Yeah. I mean, we all had different interests. Yes. Um, Suzanne always liked, she was like producing. She was like leadership, organizing. She was, she was almost great as that. She kind of, she did some in high school. She in college, she produced the Hasty Pudding show. And then she, out of college, she went, started working for Lauren Michaels. And then I was, I was always really interested in comedy okay. and writing. From how old? Junior high, probably. Okay. And I was writing stuff since junior high. What were your, your influences? Woody Allen, uh, Without Feathers, and Steve Martin. Okay. And my brother and I would memorize the Steve Martin stuff, say it back and forth to each other. We had those albums. Yeah, so I was going after comedy, but I didn't think anybody did that. Oh, and Warren was acting. And he okay. always did theater. And so we, but we all just kind of had our own roots to you know, follow our own interests there. 
But then once Suzanne graduated and started working for Lauren Michaels, and then I started meeting some of her friends, and she started dating Greg. And so I got to know Greg and some writers. And I'm like, oh, people can do this. This is a, this is a job right. that you can get. You get can paid. do this. Yes. <laughs> it didn't seem possible before. You know? Right, right. I'd never met anyone. So I guess it was through Suzanne that I thought I could get in and start getting in and started writing. And it was a couple of years before I got my first job after writing right. many, many spec scriptures. And then Warren was, uh, he graduated pursuing acting in New York. He has his headshots and right. he's going for that. And, you know, as you know, that's it's kind of a, a brutal and uh, a fr- brutal road and takes a tremendous amount of not just talent, but luck as well. Right. And so he wasn't getting nowhere. And I was like, come on, come on out to write. So uh, Suzanne led the way. You know, we were talking is basically it. We were watching each other. So right. we, it wasn't a coincidence that we all ended up out here. Yes, but how lucky, I guess, in a way for you. I mean, you're, you, you clearly could have found out this information from somebody else, but that you know, her being interested in producing yet landing with Lauren Michaels, who at the time is the king of comedy on television. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, starting SNL and, and so for you to have that experience of meeting Greg, meeting others, seeing her work with them, that feels lucky. I mean, like, right. I mean, if she goes sure. and works with Jerry Bruckheimer, it's a different, it's a different deal. Right, and I'm writing Law and Order Space. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I probably still be. I mean, I wrote order. what interested me. I wasn't writing sketches. You know, I never tried right. to like get on SNL. Right. Do you think there's something about your parents or your upbringing, or was it your environment? What do you think brought the three of you in some ways to have this interest in the arts, or was it just you? Is it a coincidence? You know, I don't know. My sister's job, it, you know, takes a lot of creativity and vision. But at the heart of it, you know, she's been uh, an executive, a president. A CEO. She's a business person. She, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Part of me thinks like Warren always would have like loved, loved that acting thing work to work out. I don't know. I mean, he certainly gave it up hard. So maybe he was ready. You know, I think that happens. A lot right. of actors, they're just, they don't just like abandon a dream. It's just like, it's okay. Okay. I did what I needed to do to try to pursue that. And right. It becomes very difficult. Yes. Um, you studied economics. Yeah, I studied economics. And I loved economics. Why? I loved it. What about it? It's so interesting. Um, economics is like, uh, you know, in macroeconomics, certainly in an undergrad level, is, is about how to organize the world. How do you organize society? I just think it's it's fascinating. Everything you do is a series of incentives to try to make the world, uh, the country look a certain way and act a certain way. I mean, we are, the U S is more of it just a result of its tax code than anything else. Do you think that that experience helped you to create worlds in television or at least manage people as showrunners? No. Absolutely not. In fact, nothing helped me manage people as showrunners. I was not a good manager of of people. Of you were a good manager. You weren't a good. You don't think you were a good manager of people? I I think it was it was really hard for me. I was not a natural manager of people. No, 
Interesting. I like writing. <laughs> Is that because you prefer to be by yourself? Yeah. Yeah, we all prefer you to be by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you give yourself enough credit for that though, uh, because thanks. I I no, I, because I think there are there are different types of leaders and there was I don't think any question about your vision and you had an ability to articulate those things. I don't think it's okay. about I don't think being a people person is necessarily doesn't have to make you a good leader. I'm mean, not that you're not a people person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I like I like people. That's, you do. I, yeah, I do. I, yeah. Uh, um, no, and that's kind of not what I was talking about. It's not, it's okay. not like being a loner. It's there, there's something about there's something about leadership where I think kind of a very selfish attitude gets you a long, long way. And to view everyone there, everyone around you as someone who can help you achieve what you want. I think that's good for a leader. And I think my natural thought process is like, I'm here for everybody. I'm mm. try I'm gonna try to support everybody and help them do their job as the boss. And and I think that's uh it's just a rough way to go about your day when there's so many people. <laughs> when there's so many people that you're managing, yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of worked it, in the writers' room. It was good there, but once it got to be the whole show, it's just it's just a lot of people, right? It's still hard, I think, for people to understand. Yeah, there's 150 people there just yeah. working on this one show, yeah, and that doesn't include, you know, some post production people, you know, some. PR and marketing and all of that, the number is even higher than that, that you're ultimately either overseeing or have a huge say in. Yeah. Yeah. Or managing towards too. It's yeah. Like, I had no idea I'd be on with the network and studio multiple times a day. Like right. that's, oh, <laughs> that's part of this job. <laughs> that's part of the job. <laughs> right. And now we're going to, now we're going to go through the budget. Line by line. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, that's why I asked you about economics. I mean, you clearly uh, have. Oh, there's nothing in economics that, that helps you go through a budget. I tried again and you shot me down again. You know, there's, <laughs> this, there's this thing in improv, you know, it's called yes and. You just yeah, literally no, no, did the I don't no. Think, I don't think there is. No. I don't think there is anything like that. Because you know what that just did? It just shut down the conversation. <laughs> Not once. Well, anyway, we're, but, we would let the twice. conversation go to a place where it's just like, okay, we're talking about spreadsheets. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think it's... I'm not I think even the conversation's doing great. <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, 
and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back. Clarissa explains it all. That's your yeah. first. That's my first job. Your first st- staff writing job. How'd you get it? Through an agent. Okay. My first agent at William Morris Okay, with a writing partner at the time. I started off just that job. I had a writing partner. Okay. And uh, yeah, we went to, I had come out here, signed a lease, and days later, got a job that took me back to New York. <laughs> <laughs> writing. And then we filmed in Orlando. In Orlando? Yeah. Orlando. Every time we got lost in Orlando, you'd end up at Disneyland. Yeah. All it's roads. a big place. Yeah. So were you living there or were you writing in New York and then you would go down occasionally? We'd go down, not occasionally. We went down for like four months. Oh, okay. It was great. It was great. You know, it's like 24, 25, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Send me to Orlando. What do I care? <laughs> Put me up in a like a... You know, a corporate apartment. Wow, it's bigger than any apartment I have <laughs> I've had so far. 
you were super psyched. Yeah. Did you oh, feel yeah. like you were living out your dream? There was no question. And I was getting, uh, you know, I was sharing the salary with another, with my writing partner. Right. And it was writer's guild minimum. And we were, were sharing. And I felt so loaded. It, I, I don't think I've ever felt richer. Really? Yeah. We're, now, did you have to share a bed and a, an no, apartment no, with no, the writing no, partner? No, no, How did that? I think we shared like a two-bedroom corporate apartment. Okay. All right. But you were living the life in Orlando at 24. Oh, yeah. No, it's the best. It's the best. I can imagine. I can imagine it, it going better. <laughs> uh, and we would, we would write. And then I remember taking, could take a break. Someone on the cast, like one of the 15-year-olds, and would go like to Back to the Future ride or something. Because we were on the Universal, connected to the Universal lot. Okay. It was just good. Like, yeah, no, that's what a job should be. You have a number of jobs in these time uh, during this period of time after uh, Clarissa explains it all. Weird yeah. science, weird science, the series, yeah, the that series, too. yeah. And then eventually you get hired by a guy named Greg Daniels <laughs> yeah. for a little show called King of the Hill. Now, had you worked with Greg at all? No, at this that point, was the first time. But he had like been aware of my. Spec scripts, you know, I'd always ask him, hey, what do you think of this one and this one? Oh, he would read them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he knew I was getting better as a writer, gaining experience. I had some really dreadful scripts in the beginning. Well, what was your worst? Uh, I think I had wrote a Murphy Brown where a terrorist came in. <laughs> it yeah. was just so, so misguided. By the way, I love that you said... I think I wrote a Murphy Brown. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, I know, you know I wrote a Murphy. You know damn well you wrote a Murphy Brown. No, the I think was that this might be my worst. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> okay. there's uh, there's a lot to choose from. Did you do like in back then? What were the big like? Did you have a Friends? Did you have a Seinfeld? I had a Friends. I had a Seinfeld. Uh, cheers, or was that? I had a Cheers. I think cheers, cheers might have been my very first script, and I don't remember the plot. Let me guess. They were in a bar. Hmm. I'm sure it was not good. What made you get better? Do you think your experience working made you get better? I think my experience not working actually, like this was not, this was not going anywhere. I, I wasn't getting work and the scripts had to be better. Right. And then when I finally nailed it, I wrote a, like a Larry Sanders episode of Larry Sanders. Okay. And the, like, it was crazy how the everything changed. The doors flew open, and I was hired on show after show based on that script. Really? Yeah. I always, uh, I like, I give a piece of advice to young writers when they ask occasionally, <laughs> which is, um, if someone gave me a script and it was very good, and I forwarded it to an agent, it was a, it's a favor to that writer who gave me the script. But if the script is excellent it's a favorite of the agent and if i give it to a producer it's a favorite of the producer you know it just everything flips got it and i saw one script just like really with me through uh the first phase of working now king of the hill what was it like working with greg oh it was really funny greg it was first show running yeah so he was very different. He was kind of learning how to be a 
a showrunner too, but he had crazy high standards. He's coming off the, as you know, he's coming off the Simpsons and the Simpsons was, had an atmosphere of just like, you don't go home. And so he brought that over to um, King of the Hill and we were there just all the time writing and, you know, every, every script got thrown out so many times before it became what it was. He worked so hard in making making something new. I mean, a show like that had a concept had never existed before. Right. There was this question that uh, was just one of these network questions that they're told to ask of every animation. You know, it's just, why does this have to be animated? That was just in the dogma. And the answer was, it, it doesn't. And I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> I don't, yeah. So, okay. So, so um, he put together a really fun staff. Some people from The Simpsons and some new people, some people from Texas, you know, to try to get an authentic voice. And we really bonded and we played. We just played and played. And when you're there all the time, there's, there's time because you can't be, you can't be productive all day long. So right. it, it, it opens up more time to kind of goof around. <laughs> Right. And uh, the bits became really extensive. We had an office Olympics that turned into the the offices office Olympic. Right. We had like a, there was a while there where we were an, a Nerf basketball game at lunch in the hallway. We started taking it pretty seriously, and the time that it would take, we started eating really quickly so we could get to it really fast, and we started sweating so we'd bring a change of clothes, and then we'd bring like. Let's just straight out change the sneakers, put on some basketball shoes. And we would get there and we would, and it became this thing where we were like playing two hours of Nerf basketball uh, right oh after lunch. <laughs> uh, just sweating up the storm. <laughs> um, but it was That's... great. The writers were super high quality and uh, learned a lot. And it was my style of writing, you know. Just real people talking without any kind of like big joke, you know, it's, it's more, more character-y. Mm -hmm. And it was a place where I could really thrive. Do you feel like there was anything different about writing for animation, which you hadn't done before either, or because there was no reason this show had to be animated, it, it was very much the same? It was it was very much the same. The only thing that was freed up was um, it's as if I was writing a live action show with a tremendous budget, okay. because I could have you know um, thirty five locations, right? For for a for, you know in twenty one twenty two minutes, you know I can cut some place new for a one line scene, and that that was great training too. I think, but you know you don't get to do that in a sitcom, right? You get your one day out. You know, <laughs> right. you have your sense and then you get one day up. So there's greater constraints. Yeah. You know, yeah. I used to joke occasionally by the end with you guys about, about Kevin Malone and trying to explain to you writers that I was not a cartoon character. <laughs> I'm sorry. And that, and that physically there were limitations to what I could actually <laughs> do that, that, there were. that, there that were. Homer could do. <laughs> no, could you do. were not. We didn't give you that stuff. Oh, really? Listen, of all of the stuff 
Yeah. The one that I still feel in, in it was, it, it is such a small joke and it made me laugh. It is such a small joke. What, 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 what? Episode where there's gre- we use grease in the warehouse to load trucks and we're, we're taking over from the warehouse and there's grease everywhere. Dwight and Jim are sitting on the, the sofa in the warehouse doing a talking head and I walk behind and then <laughs> there's, there's grease and then I slip <laughs> and it was like, no, no, you just need to like, it's grease. Like you just need to disappear, <laughs> which of course that means I'm laying, I'm falling flat on my back behind yeah. the sofa. That one I still feel by the way, mm. that one I Sorry. still feel in my what bones. year? What season was that? I don't know, Paul. Don't ask me okay. these questions. All right, all right, all right, all right. This was a spontaneous story. I didn't do research on that. <laughs> um, do you? It's a little bit of a loaded question. Do you have yeah. feelings about other animated shows that are potentially not um, not positive? <laughs> yeah. Do you have feelings about other animated shows that you feel like the writing gets sloppy? I, As opposed I, to the care that you all had on King of the Hill. Well, it's not just animated. I feel most shows, you know, mm-hmm. I feel most shows slip and many shows never even get there. I mean, you know, and part of it is style and preference. The big multicams that where they have this big setup and joke and the setup could be really labored and it kind of doesn't matter if it barely makes right. sense. There's nothing wrong with that, but I don't like it. You don't want to write it. I don't want to write it and I don't want to watch it. But right. but so what? That doesn't mean that like millions of people are wrong for right. enjoying it. Right. So it so we understand like, yeah, I, I I can't watch most television or sit comedy. I can't watch most comedy. Right. Because I just it just makes me too angry that they're making these decisions. <laughs> right. No, and when I'm, I hear a setup that's a tiny bit labored and isn't honest, it makes me angry. You know, and I can't enjoy the joke that comes after. And it really takes me out of it. That's so interesting. You and I are very, very similar. And sometimes I hear the whole conversation that, that went into a joke. Yeah. I hear that and I hear the like the 20 minutes that created it. I do the same thing with actors. Really? I do the same. I do the same thing. Yeah. It's when there's a choice that is made that makes no sense in terms of character Mm. but is done for the writers. Oh, it makes me so angry. Yeah. It makes me so angry. I mean that and bad performances, let's be clear. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah. again, it's just like, what do you want to call a bad performance? If, if people are, I just took my daughter to see hairspray. Okay. So in that there's a kind of performance that everybody's doing. Oh. Obviously they were all directed to do it and right. maybe it's baked into the into the show itself right that i do not that's tough to call that acting even for me um you know because you're not even pretending but uh hey there was a thousand people like loving it so right did your daughter love it uh she liked it it's not her favorite musical okay i mean she didn't know that going what is her favorite musical probably hamilton okay that's a great choice. That's a great choice. That's yeah. a great choice. Makes dad proud. Yeah. Um, so after King of the Hill, uh, you have a stretch I referred to before. Drew Carey show. 
the Bernie Mac show. What were what was it about those shows that you Greg feel, the Bunny was in there? What was it about those shows that worked well for you or that you responded to or or why were they good shows for you? Yeah. So the first one, Drew Carey, was ended up being like a, a just an awful mistake. Um, OK. Yeah. Like I, I I I kind of enjoyed watching it and I was like, huh, they're really doing nonsensical kind of. You know, the, some of the leaps they make logically are just kind of like breaking the rules a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, I was like, huh, this is a kind of a real forward thinking show. And and then when I got there, it, it was like there, it was all by accident. They weren't doing that on purpose. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. They 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 just um, that was how they worked and they did everything together. There was no solo work. For writers. In fact, I was I was completely confused the first time I was sent off a script because in the room, 15 of us, whatever, went line by line through an outline, creating the dialogue. And the whole thing was just written in a different form, not in script form. And then uh, at a certain point, they gave it to me and said, uh, you have a week. And I was like, I have a week to do what? And there's, in fact, there were like three lines, maybe that where they they got stuck on a joke and they just said writer's choice. And I think there was like a joke for them to write that. And I was like, am I just supposed to reformat this and fill in three jokes? Am I rewriting something? I I don't. I, I still don't know what I was supposed to do, and I can't remember what I did. <laughs> it was very confusing to me. But the part where the part where you know I just personally enjoy. And, and again, look, hey. Some writers just want to write in a group, and that's great. Right. But the part where, you know, I get to go off and really craft something, I didn't get to do. It didn't exist. Yeah. Fascinating. So the fact that it was your first sort of significant show that took place in a workplace environment is uh, haphazard, and there's zero connection to what was to come. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. What about Bernie Mac? Did you work Bernie Mac with, I liked. You worked with Quapas, right? Yeah. I worked with Quapas. I think he directed two of mine. And okay. I worked with Larry Wilmore. Larry Wilmore That's was right. running that, created that. That was really interesting. That was it was different than anything I had done before. Different vibe in the room. But it was fun to do. And we were trying. Mm-hmm. To the extent it wasn't better, it's just it was maybe we didn't get there, but it, you know, we were trying. Uh, it was good. The show is known for uh, the moments where Bernie would break the fourth wall and address the audience. Yeah. Directly. Yeah. To what degree were those scripted moments or how much did it come from him? Oh, uh, the show was a hundred percent scripted. Okay. I don't remember any improvising on set. Okay. So you would write those. Yeah. 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 Everything. Fully, fully formed. And it was fully formed. So I got there in season two. So Larry had fully formed the show. Right. Uh, before. You know, I, I wasn't a part of creating what that show was. It just helped. Just because I think it's interesting. You know, these two shows, essentially back-to-back, the Bernie Mac show and the Drew Carey show, obviously named after their stars. Was there anything different working in the writer's room when you're writing for someone with their name on the show? Yeah. They're they're there and they're a huge presence. I mean, sometimes they come in. Uh, Drew, Drew would... <laughs> He would come in, kind of sit on the couch by the wall, order a pizza for himself, and fall asleep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I liked you a lot. I, I thought he was jolly and nice and funny. 
I thought he was a good guy. But, you know, when the star comes in and just kind of casually sits down behind everyone, that's not that's not good for creativity. <laughs> no, okay. yeah, no, that wasn't that wasn't his best move. And then Bernie Mac, he, he was definitely um, a guy who had a big uh, sense of of who he was and how he was funny and what he wanted. Is that part of your job? Figuring out how to write to his funny? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know Greg talks about that, not to bring up the office, but Greg t- has talked a lot about that, about seeing 40-year-old Virgin and that giving him a different perspective on kind of who Steve was and what Steve was able to do. Yeah. And incorporating that into the writing of Michael Scott. Yeah. Yeah. He made a big uh, decision there that there was a, a broader character, a more likable guy. I mean, that was a key decision to take the show for years. Yeah. We wouldn't have lasted. But in Bernie, in, in the case of Bernie, I mean, his sort of style persona at that point was pretty well defined. Yeah. So beca- that becomes your job. We were job. going to that. And, and I was definitely at a, at a loss there okay. being a white guy from Connecticut. It was difficult to even um, understand him sometimes. Everyone else could. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but he had a... You know, he was kind of deep Chicago and uh, it was tough getting his voice. Yeah. But it was a great challenge, too. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do, too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, we've talked a lot about The Office, your impact on the show, but significantly for you, it becomes your debut, your premiere, your you you become an actor. Yeah, yeah. On, Something I never uh, thought would happen. You like it? You want to keep doing more? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, I don't think about it much, in and let. Uh, but sometimes when I'm watching something and there's someone kind of like me okay. doing a part. I start to think about different choices and how maybe I could have done that a little bit better. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think about it much. And I, you know, I made a movie where yeah. I started. Yeah. It made me think a lot about what a lead is, a lead actor. I mean, it's very different. In what way? You're talking, uh, first off, you're talking about Song of Neck and Back. By the way, he also directed and produced and wrote and did the whole damn thing. But wh- being so number one on the call sheet, what what is that? Why is that different? I think you have the responsibility of creating someone, and maybe it's all maybe it's just genetic, but people have to just want to watch you. You put the camera on someone, and they they bend down, they tie their shoelaces. You know, just watching some people do that, that's going to be fascinating. And I, and I can't take my eyes away. And other people are just kind of tying their shoelaces. And uh, a lead needs to be fascinating. What does it take to get there? You know, I don't have formal training. Maybe there's, maybe there's a lot you could do. I don't know. Or maybe you just have to have that persona, that face, and that way of being when the camera's pointing at you. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what's going on. Right. I want to see more. So like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to get there. I don't know if I ever could. And the road that takes me, you know, I, I stopped the next movie I made. I didn't put myself in. I stopped trying to develop for myself because I, I don't know. What, I don't know uh, what that thing is. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think, though, that I know that that cannot be something that you're thinking about when you're doing it. I do know that. Yeah, no, you're probably right about that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You're probably right. You just got to be in the moment and, and yeah, trying to do your thing. Although sometimes, you know, like Steve wasn't there till take 12 and there was nothing interesting about the first 11 takes. I don't know. Maybe there is something you can do 
Wow. I mean, <laughs> there was nothing interesting in the first 11 takes. I remember once with, with Julian Farina was directing this episode that I wrote and I was on set and it's just, I was watching the scene and I was like, blah, you know, what's going on? And, um, I totally thought it was me and I was talking to him about what we could rewrite. I didn't know why it wasn't a more entertaining scene. And he just said, hold on. And he went and he talked to Steve privately and he came back and the next take was amazing. Yeah. And it was completely a scene worth watching. And I don't remember which, what scene it was, but I remember being completely happy. And I've, I was like, what did you, what did you say to Steve? He said, I just taught him, I told him to kind of, you know, bring it up. He's got to kind of bring it. So I don't know. We should have Steve on here <laughs> and ask him what the hell he does when he needs to bring it. I think it's about just being fully committed to, to playing the part in the given circumstance. I think that's interesting. Well, that's what I always felt about the rest of my acting, you know, and playing Toby was like, when I'm completely in it, then, then I'm scoring. For you. Yeah. Acting, directing, writing, or I'm going to say producing, but being boss man, either showrunner or the head of a movie, you being the person in charge, what's your favorite? Straight out favorite? Ooh. Ooh. You know, it's because it's moments. I can't do that. I can't do that. There's these moments that are amazing in each one of them. Well, producing the least but okay but now there's, there's these moments in in acting when you nail something that everything just feels like that's amazing but at the same time writing too it's what i get to still do you know right i still will i shouldn't say but i'll still just sit here and, and crack myself up and write stuff <laughs> and laugh <laughs> i can promise you this i don't crack myself up in front of a mirror uh-huh yeah but yeah, it's a difference. Well, that's the toughest thing with acting. And that's why I do it the least. That is the, that's what I figured out when I went on a couple of auditions after the office and being on the other side of auditions, I learned how, how, what I need to do. And it's days of prep for an audition. What you come, need to do. What I, what I would need to do is days of prep for an audition. Okay. But that only makes sense if that's, that's all you're doing. Right. You know, you can't, you can't be pursuing multiple things. It'll just eat up all of your time. Why is it days of prep? What, what do you, like, what do you mean? So I think when I'm auditioning someone, okay. someone has made a decision about every word and someone has made choices and they've created a character and they've done all the work. They get the part, you know, and it doesn't mean that someone else wouldn't have gotten there and been great. It's just that, um, well, they did it. I mean, you, you're comparing people. This is fascinating to me. This is fascinating to me. So when someone comes in and they're reading, I know they'll be. I, I know that they would be okay from their from their previous work, but I see it with someone who said who did everything. Yeah. See, my theory is the opposite. Hmm. Not that the work isn't there, because yes, the work should be there. And there should be a character and choices made, but fully formed. My belief always is this is a collaborative situation, right? And particularly as an actor who is given very, very little information most of the time, 
Most of the time, yeah. And if I'm auditioning for you and I don't know you, this character is a character that has been imagined. My job is to, that I make it better in some way, or I at least embody perfectly the vision that that writer has. But ultimately, in an audition, my belief is, is it's a work in progress. If I come in with a fully fully framed performance yeah then then your belief is psychologically that's how he's going to do it so here's an example yeah i i will memorize the pages i always hold a script always hold a script Mm -hmm. because psychologically to me that indicates to you we're working together on this we're still on the working on this i'm i'm shuffling papers in front of me Not that I put that away because to me, if I deliver a fully formed performance where everything is done to me, then you believe that's all this. That's, that's the performance that I'm getting from this guy. Yeah. You know, when I start to think what you're worried about is when we do it again and again, and the the actor comes in exactly the same, same. exactly the same. I mean, my, my favorite words in an audition is to give me one adjustment and do it. I love doing it again. I'm, when I did, when I did the newsroom, I worked with Jane Fonda and okay. she said that when she comes on set, she comes in with choices and having done all the work. And she said, well, well but what if uh, it said that some people don't like that? They want to be able to direct you, you know, tell you what their character is. And then she said, well, what if they don't? Yeah. I don't know. So yeah. in a script, no, I, I, in a I script not saying. everything's thought out the best way it should. It's not a final product of script, obviously. Right. You know, it's, 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 that's not the kind of piece of writing that you're doing. So, you know, someone comes in, they show you something better than what you imagined. And it's just like, fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Right. And it's a piece of relief. And I, and, and I don't think somebody can't not take an adjustment unless they show me they can. Because we'll always give, you know, I give an adjustment to an actor even when I love their performance. And I often make them worse because I liked what they were doing before. But but still, it's just like you have to say something. And, you know, if if someone ignores the adjustment, then that's maybe a, a, a red flag. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, especially with television, less so with film, you're not auditioning for the director. Right. You're auditioning for the writers who aren't going to be there on set or aren't going to be the ones who are able to have a conversation with you or give you notes. Right. So it's like you get what they're after or get, or they're really happy with, with what you're doing. And it's just like, okay, well, how how much can the director really fuck this up? (laughs) Well, I know that's what the television producers are always (laughs) thinking about. How much, how, how can we make this director proof? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're one of those two. I love Drake. Uh, well, your latest show, Lucky Hank with the incredible Bob, Bob Kirk. Yeah. Me- a member of the cast member of the office. Yeah. Maybe not the role he wanted originally, but he was still there. God bless America. <laughs> Lucky Hank, such an interesting show. And, what I want to talk about is your partnership ah, with, with Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Selman. You guys 
come from completely different backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. Law and order, criminal minds, the killing, resurrection. I mean, he's got a very dark damages, uh, damages, bloodline procedurals. Yeah. Very dark. Uh, Very dark. He's very comfortable writing stuff that's very dark. He's a very funny guy. But uh, the more he, okay, so this is interesting. This is interesting. So there were actors that we had who, the more they did it, the more serious they got. You know, mm. guest actors or something. And I've seen that with drama actors that you know, first take they kind of, it's kind of light. But the more they search for truth, uh, which is their process, the more they find the most truth in the most dramatic parts of it. In your show, what, what were you searching for? So we started with a half hour script that we sold and financially they didn't make it work. They needed it to be an hour. So we said, okay, nobody said, make it more dramatic. Nobody said, don't make it a comedy, but it just has a pull to, to, towards the dramatic. Like you're watching something for a longer amount of time and it just has to kind of has to be there. I don't, I don't know, but we were. We were looking for an honest look at the life of a working man of that age. And we just wanted it to be about living life. Okay. You know, obviously we weren't, we didn't have a procedural, we didn't have a thing to happen, but the thing we could have had was either soap or issues, you know, and we really fought hard to every time we kind of smelled soap coming in, we went the other way. And we didn't let any issues in. We just didn't want to be an issue show. This was just about trying to go through life. It got more dramatic as it went on. We started off kind of light. And as we got to know the characters more and what they were going through. And it's just a guy is having a midlife crisis. And so, you know, as Bob goes through it, it's just, it becomes just more intense. So there's episodes where I really feel are comfortable in the, um, calling them a drama and others certainly early on calling it a comedy. But this is my belief. Life is both. Yeah. Life is both. For me, the best dramas are also funny. Not, not all. I mean, there are some where it's so crazy dark, like handmaid's tale. I think handmaid's tale is a fantastic show. There is not a laugh in handmaid's tale that no, I can recall no, 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 in, no, no. All, in all of the seasons. But for me, you look at the Sopranos. Yeah. Succession. I'm rewatching Fargo now. Oh yeah. On planes. Yeah. There is a, like I'm laughing out loud with my earphones on and my yeah. iPad in bed. Like I'm laughing out loud. And then, you know, five seconds later, somebody gets brutally murdered, but that's what I, th- I think the best life is is both funny and dramatic and sometimes at the same time why do we have to characterize it i know i know but it's it's wild there's two sets of executives got your comedy executives and your dramas you got a pitch right um oscar nunez comes and plays an appearance plays dean rose yeah why didn't i Ooh. i'm just fucking with you i know (laughs) i know you are i know you are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've literally never said that to anybody here, but you, I was like, Oscar is in it. What the hell is that? He's, right, not, he's not funny or dramatic. <laughs> Love to uh, have you in it. Is there season two? 
I hope so. I don't know. We're on strike, but maybe oh, when, this, right. is, maybe oh, when this ends, they'll let me know. That little thing. Yeah. Are you happy with the reception? People, critics have loved it. I couldn't be happier there. I just wish, wish more people watched it. I mean, television's changed so much. Yes. Everybody used to watch everything. I'm mean, still a lot, millions and millions of people watching what I write. And then it's 600,000. And, and oh, that's good. Right. It is. <laughs> right. Well, it's not okay. too late to watch right. it, by the way. And the numbers still count. Last the numbers time. still count. And it's, it's getting better. And you know what? I haven't even heard what we've, what we've done on AMC Plus, which I think was a big part of how people watched it. How I watched it. Good. Uh, Lucky Hank with the incredible Bob Odenkirk. The incredible you know, Bob is, Odenkirk. He's so good. How is, uh, I can't ever say her name. And I really like, Murray. speaking of. Murray. Murray. Yes. Yeah. Enos. Enos. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. And by the way, speaking She's amazing. of not typically funny like she she's on those shows that are not typically so funny she is so delightful and obviously my old friend cedric not obviously but cedric yarborough oh i didn't know you guys dietrich botter and many many more uh congratulations thanks on that i i I it's been fun to do and i think really i'm happy with how it came out you know good i just want people to see it yeah good how was it uh, to go back to my original question working with aaron was there a good oh, balance yeah. there? So it was a lot of fun. There is. <clears throat> so we were from these different worlds. Yeah. And um, we would argue forever, like hours and hours we could argue. And then when we got to the page, we would agree so easily. Argue on a setup? We were what a scene should be, how to, right. how to organize it. Like all the rules, all the ways that we put together a scene were very different. Okay ways that we've been taught the things we were we would value first as we got to a place and then um uh, it, it, it was just kind of wild that we we realized okay we just got to stop talking and put things down and that's where we really liked each other's writing pass scenes back and forth easily it became very very easy actually nice yeah well that combination those differences sometimes you find real gold and i think the aesthetic and feeling of the show is so hard to describe because it is something special and different and new. So congratulations on that. Thanks. It was new. It was different. Like we didn't have a model. Yeah. I I couldn't point to another show saying this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which different is good. It is. It is. I think it's why we're having a tough time finding. I just need that audience to come check out the show. (laughs) It's good. It's really good. Check it out. Check it out for for Paul and and for me and my my future role on on season two. Um, yeah, the writer strike. How is it different and the same as what we went through on the office in two thousand eight? Let's see. I mean, both times we're striking for something very clear. Yes, but this time feels different in that even if we win, it's not going to be enough. Yeah, it wasn't anybody's fault. Like the companies didn't get together as an oligopoly and decide, hey, let's let's screw the writers and make everything six to eight episodes instead of 22. But that's at the heart of it because we were the bottle that we were paid was per episode um, based on 22 to 24 episodes a year in success. That's right. So now in success, it's still six or eight episodes. It still takes a year to do, especially, I mean, if you're just a showrunner. 
and your the salary just went to a quarter to a third. So nobody's fault. That's the way the marketplace went, but we're broken. A quarter of what we we're making is not enough. So it's clear what happened. It's clear it's clear what's wrong. But you know, it's still we're 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 fighting for in, these incremental gains. Right. Just a few percentage points away, actually, in the deal. So I don't know what's I don't know what the future's gonna be. I mean, to me, there's two issues. And you know, I can speak to it because it's it's all the same. It's directors, it's writers, yeah, it's actors. But it's that and it's 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 middle class actors and writers making a living off residuals, which went to zero, basically. Which went to zero. That's the other big thing. I and I feel like that's where we should all be aligned with all these three guilds should just get together. Let's make the strike about residuals. I have a theory that I I mean I had a proposal that I told them that don't seem to be acting on it. What was it? Which just like if a show is being offered by a streamer for a month, that's an airing and that should be a network payment. Like straight out. Like what we were making. It was great before, right? I mean, it right. was working. It was working. It was working. So take that airing, you know, that they did, that whatever payment it was. And it got less and less each time it was aired. But fine. fine. Keep the same payment structure. Every month the streamer offers it, it's an airing. And we should get a residual. Right based on that old scale and get rid of this, get rid of this idea that like, that it should somehow be tied to downloads, which I yeah. think is, that's our downfall there. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a very, very real problem. Everybody, you know, the last writer strike that was a hundred days, I think it probably could be 200 or 300 days this time, but wow. I, I, th- I think they're going to come to an agreement. Well, middle-class actors and writers, it, you, you can't survive anymore. You can't, you can't survive. You yeah. can't, you, you know, and I'm talking about faces. If you talk about the actors faces that, you know, on television that used to get through sometimes a year of not finding much work based on work that they had done. And that was still being seen on television. Well, now you could make an argument that their work has continued to be seen even more. and they can't qualify for health insurance. Yeah. This is a, this is yeah, a significant, okay. this is a significant, yeah. and, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about the work or how many people are seeing it or any of that stuff. The only thing that has changed is the distribution and that's a problem. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. There On that note, <laughs> uh, pick up a sign and uh, go walk down sunset Boulevard. I, um, I'm so happy for you and lucky Hank. I'm so happy Thanks. for you that you have and are continuing to do work that is interesting, that is changing the face of television, continuing to change the face of television. And um, I just, I love you. I, I, I really do. And I thank you. Love you too. I hope we get to do it again sometime. Yes. Me find too. something else or I'll find something and hire you as an actor. <laughs> Great. Maybe that'll be, maybe that'll be the switch. Always interesting. Never a dull moment. Paul Lieberstein. Thanks, Brian, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I love Thank talking you. to you. This is great. Oh, 
thank you so much. It was it was so great to talk to you again. You are engaging, you are enlightening, and well, you make me laugh. Everybody, please check out Lucky Hank, not just for Paul, but for yourselves. You won't be disappointed. And while we're on the subject, I do want to take a moment to let you guys know that the writer strike, this is a this is a very big deal. And because the writers are on strike, as I believe they they should be, it is impacting everyone who works on film and television. Nothing is being filmed right now. So that means makeup artists, camera operators, gaffers, production assistants, caterers, everyone is right now is out of work. We're at seven weeks. And like I said with Paul, I think it, it could be much longer. So if you want to support the strike and the writers and quite frankly, eventually the actors, consider making a donation to the Entertainment Community Fund. This helps support all types of entertainment workers who are affected by the strike. Entertainment Community Fund, look it up. And if you're not in a position to donate right now, take a look at the WGA website for more ways that you can help. Thank you for listening. You know the crew, well, they're very important to me and I want to make sure they are supported as as much as, as we all can during this difficult time. Best wishes to all of you. Stay safe out there and I'll see you next week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan, Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. 
Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.